Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that brings out the best storyteller and our guests using the power music has to connect us to our lives and memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Christopher Phillips, Ph.D. Christopher is the founder and executive director of Democracy Cafe, which he says is dedicated to making ours a more connected, understanding, and participatory world in which one and all can be co-creators of a more livable and lovable universe. Its flagship Socrates Cafe and Democracy Cafe Inquiry Initiatives can Continue to gain momentum throughout the U.S. and the world over, with recent established groups in countries like Saudi Arabia, India, South Korea, Germany, and Poland. He's been doing this for about a quarter century. Christopher is author of works including the international bestseller Socrates Cafe, A Fresh Taste of Philosophy, Six Questions of Socrates, A Modern Day Journey of Discovery Through World Philosophy, Constitution Cafe, Jefferson's Brew for a True Revolution, and most recently, A Child at Heart, Unlocking Our Creation. Creativity, curiosity, and reason at every age and stage of life. He also wrote two children's books, Day of Why and The Philosopher's Club. Christopher has been a network ethics fellow at Harvard University, the first ever senior education fellow at the National Constitution Center, and senior research and writing fellow at University of Pennsylvania. He travels the globe, giving presentations, workshops, and facilitating inquiries. But he says most and best of all, he's proud papa of six-year-old Sybil and 13-year-old Callie and hubby since 1998 of Cece Chapa Phillips who he first met at a Socrates Cafe. I met Chris back when he published his first book, Socrates Cafe, because my mom gave me a copy of it for either Christmas or my birthday. And after reading it, I looked him up on the early internet, and there was his website and email address. So I sent him an email, and we've been in touch one way or the other ever since. When I heard he was coming back to Fort Myers, I knew we had to get him in the Three Song Stories hot seat. So here he is, and here we go. Hey there, Christopher. How you doing? Hey. I don't know how I'm doing. This is uh, so different. Sorry, uh, sorry for the mispronunciations there at the end. No. We're just going to leave them, okay? Leave them. <clears throat> okay. And just real quick, how do you pronounce your daughter's name and your wife's name? Well, I'm thinking about pronouncing them your way. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, so sassy, Cecilia Sassy and Sibylle. And then uh, older daughter, Callie. Okay. Um, uh, so you, you, what are you doing in Fort Myers? Oh, and real quick, I'm going to break the fourth wall. We just recorded almost an hour of Gulf Coast Live, so we're going to have to rehash some of that. But yeah. here, let's go. Okay. What are you doing in Fort Myers? So I'm here today. I've, I held a Philosopher's Club dialogue with kids who go to school that's part of Lamb of God Church. And I'll be doing a dialogue this evening at the church. They say about 150 people are coming. Oh, wow. On what should a church do? Is the uh, pre-planned question. And then tomorrow I'll be at FGCU uh, hosting a regular old Socrates Cafe with students that the amazing Glenn Whitehouse has arranged. It's like my sixth visit, thank to him. That guy's my guardian angel, <laughs> as are you, uh, who have had me back here to do wondrous things. Um, uh, real quick for our listeners who may not understand what we mean by Socrates Cafe, explain what that is. So Socrates Cafe, more than anything, can be any kind of place and space where people of various viewpoints and walks of life want to come together and explore what I would call timely and timeless questions that are sort of preying on their minds of hearts and they think that they can actually benefit 
from the considered insights of other thoughtful souls. And that's that's really what it's all about. It's what it was all about and when I started in 96. And I would say it's what it's all about more than ever now in, in 2020. And you've facilitated thousands and thousands of these and they now have blossomed on their own without any direct involvement from you all over the world, yeah, right? I am not the Socrates Cafe Police. I believe it has to be this grassroots phenomenon that where people take it upon themselves to start these. So what I do is I post uh, in lang- various languages a guide to how to start and facilitate them. That's on our website at democracycafe.org. And they, I do invite and encourage them to go to that so they'll understand what the flavor and ethos and ends are for those. Hmm. You know, I mentioned in the opener how I sent you an email after I read your book, and you were the first one of many now, you know, public figures who I come across, and I just sent them a message. And more often than not, they'll send back. And it's it's like you were kind of broke the... You know, I was the one. I, yeah. was a, I started this <laughs> yeah, whole thing. Yeah, you started thing. that whole thing of me just saying, you know, they're just people like me, right? Well, Mike, let's face it. I'm, I'm above you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was a joke. Uh, um, okay. Um, uh, do, have you ever crossed paths with music during these Socrates cafes? Well, we've actually had a dialogue on like what is good music. Okay. So it is between a father who was brought up sort of like in my generation and his daughter who's all about pop. And he goes, you know, I just I just can't relate to it. What you know, she thinks she hates my music, I hate hers. He goes, on the other hand, my little little kid loves uh she's she's like a child of the seventies reborn. Huh. So yeah. No, yeah, we've had lots of this. There and there's a musicality, I think, to this, like a dance. You know, we're all sort of moving around these ellipses that interact and intersect, and there's a cadence and a rhythm. There's a riffing that goes on in these things that, that uh, I think makes it such a special occasion. Hmm. What was the musical background of your childhood, and where was that? It was weird. Can I just say my musical background and my childhood uh, were kind of weird? So, gosh, so I was born in 1959. And I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to think of there if there was any music outside of just the sphere that was brought into me by my father, where you know his family immigrated from Greece, and so I went to a lot of belly dancing. Okay. Oh, it was incredible, and. Uh, Fascinating. And then, you know, my dad himself was a piano player. Oh, yeah? A guy played starting at a very young age. Piano in the house? He had a he had a piano. He would never tell me how he came across owning it, that he used to play at dance halls and taverns that he somehow acquired. Uh, his dad died when he was seven, and so he became man of the family. And one of the things he did, among others, was he taught himself by ear to play the piano, and he played boogie-woogie music hmm. at, at dance halls and taverns. So on the other side uh, was my mother, and um, her songs were were more religious-based quite often that uh, that were introduced to me and sung to me. What again? Whether I wanted to or not, I was just a kid in the house, and what did, what did I know? And so that tradition sort of came where she uh, would. She came from a. She was born and raised in a coal mining camp in West Virginia, whereas my dad came from this gorgeous diamond of an island, dirt poor, uh, called Nisiros, uh, one of about six thousand islands from Greece. 
But so she she was originally raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and she left that faith. She said they just couldn't answer her questions. But there were a lot of songs that sprang from her Appalachian upbringing, like "There's a Happy Land Somewhere," and what's and there's and it's just a prayer away, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was brought up in this really curious mix, and then just going with my. Ribald Uncle Jimmy, my dad's brother, who would take me to places he probably shouldn't have taken me uh, to listen to some uh, Greek stuff and maybe take a few sips of Greek stuff. And, uh, Uzo. I'm just going to nod my head. I'm not going to say <laughs> see or no, yes or no. But um, so, yeah, so it was just this. So I spent all my you know school years uh, basically in Newport News, Virginia, this rather sprawling, faceless city in the height of the desegregation era, uh, and then summers in Tampa in Clearwater with uh, the, basically the Greek side of my family, and then and then and, and then you've got my mother's side of the family now settled in Naples, largely. They live in a in a family compound there. Huh. I didn't realize that. Yep. Um, so you were born in 59. So as rock and roll was rolling down the trail, how did that uh, enter into at See, all the, the family? Thing. I mean, I was like always just – I kept missing stuff, you know? So I was born in 59. I have a brother who's two years older than me. So he just got in right mm-hmm. under the wire with uh, some of the stuff that I didn't start truly appreciating till later, you know, like like Deep Purple yeah. Luckily, I mean, I still listen to the albums that he played, but it, I, I just missed it. And so when I became, a, you know, a young teen and stuff, so all of a sudden it was really bad '70s music. It was when uh, Robert Plant uh, had a haircut he should be really ashamed of, as should I, mine. Uh, wore <laughs> these shoes called Stacks and uh, got our hairs and you know cut in this feather style. You did? Yeah, man. Oh, I cannot see it. Oh, oh yeah, I used to go. I mean, I Okay, let me tell you this. I paid 4 bucks to go to an Eagles concert and guess who the lead-in singer was? Who? Jimmy Buffett. What? Just before he hit it big. So, I mean, and you had feathered hair. I had feather hair. I had these uh, like paisley shirts with these metal clasp buttons. I was were you, were you a discoer at all? I was a discoer. So it was the stylist style, you know, really bad lyrics, you know. Um, the, the saving grace was actually um, my— It's like your awkward years no, were no, music's yeah. awkward years. Well, except for the <laughs> fact that luckily because of busing, I had a lot of uh, students. There were a lot of students who to this day are my friends who are African-American. They introduced me to, to rhythm and blues. So I wasn't totally hopeless or, or lost of, of some great, great tradition. That, you know, stuff like Sly and the Family Stone to this day, I absolutely love. I want to thank you for letting me be myself again. <laughs> you know? Did you ever play musical instruments? I did. I played the uh, mostly the violin. I was – I was, oh. and then – and so I, it was more of a – Stuff that I would do in in music class at school, and I also had a trumpet. I took trumpet lessons. Gosh, I carried that trumpet around with me until my latter thirties. Mm. Just something uh, I would pull out from time to time, and then I'd get that kind of puffy lips. So, but I think there was always a an element of music in my family that um, I think is can be kind of a saving grace. Can be something that even in the most divided family. 
you know, we talk about dialogue and inquiry, but sometimes I think it's music. In fact, gosh, I hate to say this. If I had to choose between anything, I think it's the music that, that just resonates throughout this universe. You know, like I can listen to a Beatles song now that I first listened to without understanding in maybe 69, and there's just a timeless sense about it. And I just think my lucky stars that they existed, you know, for that period of time and they created stuff without epic that to this day is my go-to when I, in, in difficult times. One of the things I remember, you just reminded me of this for whatever reason, I remember being at a an outdoor show. The band was one of the openers, so nobody really knew their music. And it occurred to me, though, that if like during a, a guitar solo, if he started playing the wrong notes, everybody would know it because it would you'd hear it go off the rails, even though you don't know where it's going. And it doesn't matter who you are right. or what your background is or what right. your perspective is. There's something about music that when it doesn't follow the form right. that our spirit wants to hear, yeah. we know it in a way that's kind of magical. You know what I used to do? I used to try to – I haven't thought about this in decades. I used to try to play on my dad's bongo drums – the drum solo from Inagata Davida. I did. I was like, how many minutes? Like 17 minutes. It was long, man. Until my just wrist would get sore. Hmm. But yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Do you know the? Uh, do you remember the first music that you owned? The first music that I owned was a forty-five that I bought by Rod Stewart, Maggie May. Oh, nice. That's a pretty good first music. It's pretty good. I wish I could tell you that it all went uphill from there. Um, I may have. <laughs> you may have peaked. <laughs> I may have peaked. And then, you know, just just a uh, baby, I'm a want you here from bread. I really like their stuff. Um, that was the kind of music that I listened to. We actually even in Newport News had a local guy Austin something that came out with a hit. It was one of those one-hit wonders. Something in your eyes that just won't let me forget you. There's something wrong with me. I haven't thought about this in ages. <laughs> that was in middle school. He suddenly was this phenomenon, you know. And and then in my middle school, we had a drummer named Billy Drummond with a big afro. He was a phenomenal drummer then and to this day – He's a very, very – you just look him up. Billy, I think it's BillyDrummond.com and you go. He's playing all these jazz joints in New York City. Uh, really, really well-known. Went to my high school in the sprawling face of the city. <clears throat> yeah, so we've got that. Um, it is time for your first song, believe it or not. All right. Uh, Honky Tonk Train Blues. All right. You want to tell a story? Do you want to listen? How do you want to handle this? Let's listen. You want to just listen? Yeah. Man. All right. I like when people do that. This is Honky Tonk Train Blues. How do you say his name? Oh, you say it. Because, you know, I was brought up Mead, on Honky. Mead Lux Lewis. There you go. <laughs> Is that how you say it? That's how I say it. I'm, auto, I'm an autodidact, <laughs> so a lot of times I pronounce things that are just totally off the map. Okay. Um, this was first recorded in 1927. We have two versions. Do you have two versions in there? Okay. Yes, we have I have two a version with static or without. Yes. So uh, one is just like the song as it would sound if you had headphones on, and the other was somebody actually recorded the record oh, playing. Wow. So do you want... Pops and clicks, or do you want pops and clicks? Pops and clicks. All right, this is Honky Tonk Train Blues by Mead Lux Lewis. Oh yeah. <laughs> so oh where's that gosh. take you? I saw oh. that taking you places. I could see it on yeah. your face. I mean, it just 
it just transported me, transported my dad. I mean, he could play that just as well as what you just heard. And he just had this ability that just, if you met the guy, you would never, ever imagine in a million years that this is what he could do and that this is uh, what he learned how to play when he was a child. So I think it came out of 27, so he probably was six years old, and then his dad died when he was seven, and so he uh, started learning how to play. The piano was just, he was thinking in terms of brute survival. What can I do to, uh, to support my it was a skill. Little sister, my brother, and my mother, my very matriarchal mother. That's, that was the thought going through his head because he gave it all to her. Even when he became very successful as a – rose up to the highest ranks of the Department of Defense, he still gave for many years a tith to his mother. That was she, – she was the one who steered him in that practical direction. You're going to become this You're gonna, you know, because her husband died uh, just at age 57. Um, but even – there was a musicality and a cadence and a cockiness to my dad's walk and strut. Even when he was mowing the lawn, you know, he was always having an inner conversation and music. But he he could play that just as well. And if you ever met the guy without him sharing that – in his latter life, without sharing that history. And if you ever got him to sat down at the piano, even if he hadn't done it for – Ten years, like over Christmas or something, he would just sit down and you could see that he was transformed and transported by just playing this music. He could – just like learning how to ride a bike I guess at that point uh, and we would take with us. We moved a lot while he was trying to advance up the ranks and he brought this warped piano from his, from his youth with him. Wherever we went, we would keep it in a garage or whatever and he would beat it into life somehow. He huh. would get the music to come out of it. <laughs> And it was just an extraordinary thing. There were other songs. I mean, he said, you know, pretty body songs. You know, she's my Texarkana baby and I love her lolly law. So he was a singer too? He, he, yeah, not a good singer no more than I am, but he loved these songs. He didn't mind singing them. Yeah. Uh, and he wasn't a drinker, so it wasn't like he did it uh, just, you know, when he was just feeling no pain. Uh, but, you know, chicory chick, chala chala, chicorona, banana, kabala kabala. So he had this weird <laughs> palette of music. That he would do, but it was the boogie woogie music that, uh, and I guess that's why to the, his dying day he also loved to dance to music of that sort. He was an inveterate dancer. He loved to shag dance and stuff <laughs> like that. But it all, and as a child, I was mesmerized, but I can't say I gained some abiding appreciation of it at that point. It was just it had nothing to compare it to. It was just part of your childhood. Right. When was the last time you listened to that song? The last time I listened to it, Mike, until uh, you asked me about this, was, gosh, it, it's been, I would think it's been about um, 30 years, about half Holy a lifetime cow. ago. Yeah, it was a really long, it was the last time, let's see, so, because he came, he when he retired, he came back to Tampa. It, it, I, I think I listened to it when he played it. Uh, we always got together at Christmas, the whole family, before my parents separated and before m my brother separated from his first wife. Uh, when we got to Christmas, together with Christmas with them when they were living in Beckley, West Virginia, and he just sat down at that piano that they had at their house. I'm sure that's when the last time was, and he just started beating it out. 
And, you know, all of a sudden, all the divisions and pain and different things that uh, had just all had sort of dissipated, for lack of a way of putting it. And we just sort of became enthralled with the music. Those, mu- those moments were few and far between, man. Uh, I, I wish... Uh, I don't know. It's it's easy to speak in glowing and lofty terms about music's magic, but it was wonderful even just to have a moment like that. So memories uh, are are in, intersticed with things like that. Was that um, something that immediately popped into your head when we presented you with the premise for this show? It was the first thing that popped into my head, um, and you have to understand I'm in that and the song by my mother that um, these were just songs that were periodically, intermittently part of my life. And so when you ask to bring up songs that evoke certain memories and certain passages, these these were the songs that sort of came up un, unbidden, the, uh, and, and, you know, because they represented so much to me. Uh, so, you know, people from such different backgrounds, how in the world did they even come together as a couple? And then, uh, but what, what, and the thing that, I think really resonated with me was not just the song, but the the dance that it evokes. These are so, that was a song about also getting up and you know shaking a leg. Yeah. That's, that's one of the best memories I have is just my parents dancing. I remember one time we went to a Cow Sills concert somewhere someplace in New Jersey on the, on the boardwalk, and uh, we just I just love watching my parents dance and listen to that kind of music. You a dancer? I am. I, yeah, you uh, dance around the house. I do. I I love to dance. Again, I was brought up on belly dancing. I was brought up on rhythm and moving around and swaying, uh, so that when the seventies and the artless art artistry came to be, and we didn't, you know, it was disco dancing. I at least had a little bit of a background <laughs> in how to shake a leg that was different from that, and so I sort of emerged from that fairly unscathed. And then and then my beautiful wife is from Mexico and it's in their DNA to dance. So uh it's just a joyous, beautiful thing to to have that uh ability to dance because most of my friends from Newport News couldn't dance very much or even really liked it that much, but they felt an obligation. <laughs> <laughs> to get up sometime. What is the music scene around the house with you and your wife and your kids? Who's playing what? It's How's really it eclectic. I mean, my daughter Callie, who's thirteen now, well, she's uh, she's she's into just whatever the latest pop stuff is. She's actually starting to introduce a little bit to reggaeton music, but she doesn't like the uh, some of the misogyny. In some of the, hmm. in some of it, she's 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 recognizing that herself. That's great. So she likes the music, but she thought, well, maybe I'll learn how to play something and, and write my own lyrics that sort of counteracts. What's that. she playing? Yeah. So so you know, she she and Sibley both take piano lessons. Oh, and great. Kelly has this photographic memory, kind of like my dad, and so she can just be introduced to a complex tune and then just sit down and play it. Wow. And same thing with a children's story. She'll, she's seven years older than Sibley. We'll read her a children's I'll read Sibley a children's story. Callie will be sitting there just sort of listening to something else. And then she'll just repeat the story. Hmm. Oh, my God. It, it's, it's just really an incredible thing. I mean, Ceci was brought up. She was born in 72. So she was brought up, you know, in the era of uh, some, you know, Shakira and lots of things. Who's still very popular to this day. So we listened to... 
a little bit – it's safe to say in our case that it's really true, a li- little bit of everything. I mean I'm a huge Beatles, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin fan and my six-year-old Sibley is a child of the 70s. She just loves it. She can't listen to what she calls Zepp enough with her dad. Callie has never really liked it that much. So Sibley and I will just go off somewhere together and we'll just rock it to Zepp. And stuff. I, I, yeah. Isn't it amazing how uh, a, a kid can take something that you're not interested in and breathe life into it in a way that you are because through the lens of their perspective. You know, it's like, incredible. Like how I was never you, into yeah. musicals. Yeah. But Gwen's super into musicals. So now I'm super into yeah. musicals. <laughs> I, yeah. How, how do you explain that? I mean how do you explain what touches one person and not another? How do I explain that my – my six-year-old just this music speaks to her is it because she just wants to be close to her daddy or is it but because when I see it I see her moving I see it touches something within her where my oldest kid just like rolls her eyes hmm. at it I mean I was also brought up you know we spent several years in northern Virginia and we would go see things like uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Man of La Mancha uh, musicals at you know the Lincoln Center and stuff so that also had some some influence with me too. I think that uh, it, it's no accident that when I started school, I started trying out for theater parts. I took voice lessons. I, my, the person I took voice lessons from was the Reverend Mother in the original Broadway production of The Sound of Music. Wow. Yeah. So I, I actually paid my way through summer classes at William & Mary just so I could stay on the dorm and keep taking voice classes and also took some piano then as well. I hadn't thought about that in years. I, I took piano over those summers too. I think in some ways I wanted to at least for a little while, carry on with that tradition too. So I would, I would be belting out of my dormitory songs from Evita uh, that, that I would also have to you know, perform in class and choral things. You said you tried out for some plays. Did you ever get in them? Did you ever wind up on stage? You know, I, I didn't. I had stage fright. Uh-huh. I had petrifying stage fright. The thing that I was actually good at is being part of a sort of a chorale thing. I, I Even when I graduated from William Mary, I moved up to Maine, took a $52 a week job as a newspaper reporter. I, I joined a chorus, these choral groups. I see. And uh, my voice got lost in the crowd. And I just like being part of it. That uh, is actually something I'm looking for right now to be part of something like that. I like sort of knowing that my voice can just be one of many and that it doesn't matter if some of us really can't hit the key. Yeah. Um, do you pl- listen to music while you're writing? Do you have music on? I listen to music while I'm writing. Now, when we're driving, we listen as a practice to classical music because we want our kids to have a, some sort of inchoate appreciation of it. Uh, when we're not listening to our youngest daughter's sort of you know kids' music, that's what we listen to. When I'm writing, classical music doesn't do it for me, man. It it has to. Be, I, I I listen to Paul McCartney. Or, really? Yeah, I do. I listen to live, uh, recorded concerts of his, and I'll listen to them again and again and again. So it just becomes sort of part of my my background music. I I especially listen to music of his. Um, 
uh, when he and Linda were traveling together and he had formed the wings because that was more of when I was becoming more familiar. That brought me back to the Beatles because the wings was really big uh, when I was suddenly starting to take an interest in music. But to this day, in fact, the book that I'm writing right now uh, is um, I've got my earphones on, whether it's my, my cell phone or my computer. And I do. I listen. Basically, there's three different concerts of his that I listen to. One was a recent one that he did. Not that recent. That well, one was that he did when he was in a in a metro station for his latest album. One was when he was at the Ed Sullivan Theater outside on a sort of like a terrace mm-hmm. with his latest group, and and the other ones uh, when he was with. Linda, truly, you can tell, was the love of his life, was his reason for being and for not doing himself in, I think, at a time when it could have gone either way. And and she just abandoned her career as a really gifted photographer to hit the road with him and let him not just reconnect with others but mainly with himself in in a staggering ability to write songs that I've just never seen before or since. He's still coming out with better stuff than any of this crap my daughter likes to listen to. I mean, he does. If you met him in the real world, would you tell him that you listen to his old shows on repeat while writing? I don't know. I think I just want to give the guy a huge hug and saying that uh, his music has at various junctures been a saving grace for me. You know, I... I mean, if I had one chance, like, I don't think I'd do. Hey, Paul, hey, Paul, guess what? <laughs> guess what I just do when I write my books that you'll never read in your entire life? No, I think I said, Paul, thank you. Thank you for just being. Thank you for channeling all that pain, losing your mother, you know, early on, losing your beautiful soulmate of a wife and somehow surviving enough to, to keep writing music that has, um, you know, brought – uh, joy through that portal of suffering to so many of us. Well, maybe he'll hear this show. Ha ha. And he'll find out. Um, time for song number two. What is it? I'm a lonely little petunia in an onion patch. <laughs> so just so the listeners know, you gave us this song and it was the first time ever that I was completely stumped in finding this song until I kept digging and digging and digging. And I found it on archive.org where people had – there was like seven different recordings of the same – it was from the 78, and they all sounded just a little different, so I picked the one that sounded the best. Wow. But yeah, this is I'm a Little Petunia in an Onion Patch, right? You want to tell a story? What do you want to do? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, if you look at the – the there were lyrics actually to the to the – to the first song that you played about, you know, I dreamed of orchids one night in my lonely room. There's there's uh, the lyrics that they wrote to that. I, I think sometimes all the songs that I chose without realizing it at the time were about loneliness. You know, my mother, she would sort of stand uh, straight and put her arms behind her back sort of like a schoolgirl and start singing. I'm a lonely little petunia in an onion patch. Oh, won't you come and play with me? Now, it's not like I said, Mom, would you sing this song for me? I'm just dying to hear it. No, it was just she would um, – it was just a song that she just wanted to share with me. My my daughters uh, or my family just visited with her for five days over Christmas. And again, unbidden, she you know would start singing these songs with her. And, you know, she – my mom is just this brilliant woman who never had the opportunities that I had in life. Uh, again, this inc- 
like, I guess, gosh, like my dad, really with a photographic memory. She was studying to be a nurse when she met my dad. But again, there's, you know, there's, there's an element of loneliness. We were a little bit sort of a islands into ourselves in some ways. So I, I doubt that she would even recognize why is it that of all the songs that she could have sung to me or, or my kids, you know, it's all about loneliness, you know, why, you know, but it's still a flower, somebody blooming and blossoming and budding in spite of and because of a lot of different things. You know, how did this kid from, no, I mean, a, a coal mining town formed by a coal baron, a real coal baron named Major Tams, uh, get over at least to Newport News, you know, uh, the child of an alcoholic father, violent uh, man, uh, get away from all that and, and, you know, keep enough of a semblance of sanity to, to go on and do some decent things. But those were songs that obviously meant something to her and that went on to mean something for me. These were never things that they felt like they, you know, Chris, I want you to make sure you pass these on to somebody else. But um, I'm, I'm very, I don't know, I'm, I'm glad and grateful and sad and melancholy too. You know, my mom could connect with, I mean, she was that kind of person that you could go to a grocery store and the person in the aisle, standing, waiting in the aisle to pay behind her would just share her life story with my mom, you know. And yet it was there was better communication, I think, outside our family channels and than within. I'm, I know <laughs> by no means I'm alone in that, but I think it was that great ability of hers to really listen at least to others outside the family that made me you know, learn how to be a good listener, but but both within and without the family. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's a that that song is something that I'll remember, something that will probably haunt me in some ways. I, I think, you know, you, the word haunted doesn't have to have a negative connotation or not totally something. But I, I mean, I'm haunted by my dad's music. I'm haunted by my mother's music that, uh, you know, I feel bad that they, you know, they were together for a really long time. Uh, I saw moments, some beautiful moments of love, but I also saw moments that were contrary to that. But that I think that, uh, gosh, when I think of the best moments with the, the family of my childhood and youth, there was always that element of music, always, especially just the dance music. Are you ready to listen to this? I am ready. You probably haven't listened to this version, or if you have, it's been a really long time because really it's pretty time. invisible. Uh, I'm a Lonely Little Petunia in an Onion Patch by Arthur Godfrey, recorded Gosh. in 1948. We found this version on archive.org, recorded from the original 78. I'm a lonely little petunia in an onion patch. Oh, won't you come and play with me? Yeah, that's uh, – so, you know, the, the part about crying, you know, sadness. I mean, this was a woman who would get in, you know, just would have a sort of veneer of happiness, but just this deep, deep well of sadness too. Uh, a lot of crying sometimes, a lot of sobbing sometimes. I hadn't thought about that in a really long time. But then it's sort of an – an existential element about wouldn't you rather be a, a dead petunia <laughs> than, than some other things, uh, which is it's like, yeah, you know, you, you can uh, 
and bear a lot of slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And I, I admire, you know, she's scrappy. She's this little woman, a lonely petunia. She's, she's had a lot of loneliness and a lot of emptiness, but uh, just uh, she managed to bring some kids into the world. And I'm, I'm sure both of my parents were like, very like how the hell did we raise a kid like Chris I never you know, it's funny I, I never gave them a moment's problems uh, and I went on in a direction that for them was inconceivable uh, understandably so but uh, you know that that element of loneliness I think resonated for me gosh until my late latter 30s and, uh, until I met Ceci you know I you can you can you can overuse terms and overstate things, but I think uh, when I th- yeah that song has a um, there's also a sort of a wryness to it, a sort of a a, a smile on the end of every word. Yeah, even the little kid voice. Did your mom all of a have that in it when she was singing? Yeah, and she always, um, you know, that's so fascinating that you would ask that question about voice. She, you know, she, um, all of her, rest of her family uh, have voices, accents that are pretty Appalachian, no matter where they move, and she didn't like that their that voice, and so she always spoke. And still does sort of in a little kid sort of sing-songy voice. But also she feels like she also cultivated deliberately a sort of a, what she calls my English accent. Um, that's her, – her voice is so different than all of the rest of her six brothers and sisters. Uh, it, it's absolutely fascinating. But she always had that sort of little kid kind of voice. And I – gosh, I, I think that um, – I think this that's why in fact that maybe this song of all of the songs that she could have shared with me um I think she sort of mimicked not mimicked but took it so much into her DNA that if you if you could listen to her speak sometimes all of a sudden without her even knowing it it will sort of uh go into this really little kid voice that I find a uh it it makes me uncomfortable uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, that it, you, you can tell she's talking to you supposedly, but that she's so inward uh, that she's really having almost a, a conversation when she's not a, almost aware of the presence, or at least she's aware that there's a, like what you might call an audience yeah. out there, but that she's really speaking mostly to herself. Did she do the PU part? She did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she did them. She still does. Uh, she, My kids... Um, you know, they said I don't know if they even understood why, but I think that I think that song is almost defining for her, and not just the song, but the different kinds of voices that are that are in the song. And there's even that little bit of you know this song of morbid sadness and loneliness, but it's like a little bit of an upbeat, and then the little kid thing, yeah. uh, almost a little eerie, I think, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, they don't. They don't make songs like that anymore. No, I know. Um, you know, it's a song. Yeah. Did you know that the the same guy that wrote that wrote "I'm Looking Over a Four Leaf Clover"? I did not. <laughs> yeah. I did. You know, and again, I, I I wanted to sort of 
come to this fresh. I actually didn't research much. Good, I wanted thank to, you. I we wanted love it, that. I we, wanted it to be really visceral. That's what we're see, aiming for here. Yeah. I mean, it's evoked some memories. I mean, I, I I just remember. Gosh, there's so much loneliness and sadness, uh, and yet there's just just these moments of indescribable beauty and and love, as well. I wish there had been more uh, frequent. Not so few and far between, but it led me to the love of my life. So, hmm. you know, and you, some moments are real, are really touch and go. Are real. I don't blame anybody who just decides, uh, you know, I've had enough. I don't. I mean, I lost a dear friend just before I started Socrates Cafe, who, uh, you know, she she ended her life and. Uh, Gosh, I'll never forget just before that that she and I were on the very top of a Ferris wheel and uh, and she was just rocking it to Joan Jett. Uh, you know, I love rock and roll. It was so mm. wonderful. It was so wonderful. And the reason I think I think of that is because they were suddenly outside of themselves for a while. People who were typically inward, 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 just like my mom. You know, suddenly singing, singing, singing is a little bit outward in a way that you know. Just you forget about yourself for a little bit, and you're a little more spontaneous. You know, you said they you, they don't make songs like that anymore. And I was thinking, um, live recordings are kind of like time travel. Like when you're listening to those yeah. Paul McCartney albums, yeah. you know, you're hearing uh, some near semblance of what the people who were standing there right. were hearing. It's amazing. And for a recording like that, that was them in a room playing music. Yeah, you know, and we don't really. There's not that much of that happening right. anymore because pe- yeah. it's all being time shifted, and you're taking out right. snippets of the best lick and laying yeah. it in. And isn't that something? You know, I do. I I have listened to this one concert with him and the Wings and and with Linda, where the piano. You know, he's suddenly playing "Baby I'm Amazed" or "Maybe I'm Amazed," and and that she's sort of in perpendicular uh, to him on the stage, and just um, there's just something about it. About them as a couple that uh, I think is starting at a very young age. It's like, gosh, that's what I want, man. Hmm. You know, and that uh, you know, sometimes it's just this serendipity, this confluence of factors that uh, can suddenly, after just a pretty endless series of pretty miserable relationships, uh, led me to, at least in my case, you know, just to somebody who uh, saved me. Have you seen many concerts with your wife? We, you know, that's we we have seen some. Ceci, uh, you know, I met her when I was starting Socrates Cafe in New Jersey, and we actually went to see uh, U two. Uh, we've we've been to see like things like the Rolling Stones. But I have to say, your question actually made me go back to my dad. Huh. He, he would drag me along to see uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. Wow! Yeah, at the Hampton Coliseum, he would. Uh, I don't know. He could have brought anybody. He wanted to bring his his youngest kid. Uh, we would go see uh, Elvis Presley in his more bloated years, right? Uh, his jumpsuit years. Yeah, and but he he just. Lo- it was funny though. He also Dad also had this side where he also liked a little bit of the Rolling Stones, but he 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 wouldn't reveal that to a lot of people. Um, I think he. He liked. Uh, I know he liked them when they were originally formed. What was the What was the uh, the singer's name who died? He, uh, John Brian Jones. Uh, uh, you got me. You, have I got you? Yeah. Because I, I remember I, yeah. uh, one time we actually listened to Mick Jagger 
uh, right after his, his, the original, uh, the, I think it was Brian Jones, had died, that he rang up, he read a poem by uh, Shelley, uh, Ode, I think it was called uh, Adonais, and it was this incredible thing. And for some reason, my dad, I don't know how he got this appreciation for that kind of music or for that kind of poetry, but he actually, we listened to a video of that one time, watching Mick read uh, sort of this elegy. To, to that singer. So it was, but it was weird. I, the only concerts I ever went, unless I was with my buddies, was with my dad. We saw Ray Charles together playing, which was an incredible experience. Mm. Ray, you know. He must have loved that as a he, pianist. Yeah. Dad, oh, my God. Know? I mean. Yeah. But then I would be his sidekick huh. at um, Elvis and Engelbert and stuff like that. And, and then there one, I think once we went to see the Beach Boys together at, at times when those things were affordable. Yeah. Uh, but I was this, I was this go-to person to, to accompany him and stuff like wow. that. Wow. Um, do you have any TV theme songs committed to memory that you'd like to sing with us? I can sing you parts of them because I want to see if you uh, – have you ever – there was a song about these uh, people. It's about time. It's about space. Now, the one that I'm uh, – the show that I watch so many times that I bet you I've seen each episode at least 100 times. Wow. And I can't whistle, but I'm going to do it anyway. Beverly. Andy Griffith. Andy of Mayberry. <laughs> that will suffice for our needs today. I love to whistle. So Man, what, I was whistling that, before I even got on mic. Yeah. You know, I was, a, I was actually – here I am, a writer and stuff. I, I was actually really hooked on TV. I would come home and watch those half-hour Dick Van Dyke, Andy Griffith, probably you know before that a little bit, things like Father Knows Best. And then probably the last one that I became hooked on was Happy Days. And then I sort of just – Disassociated, and then TV jumped the shark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just wasn't any fun anymore. I tried to get into stuff like Friends. I think, like everybody, I was probably into Seinfeld, sardonic approach. But I just never meant so much to me anymore. I don't know. You know, it's kind of funny. I think of the Happy Days uh, theme song a lot as a song that I think people would know. But you're the first person who's ever mentioned that when we ask this question. We ask this yeah, question yeah. quite Monday, often. Monday, Wednesday, happy, happy days. Tuesday, Tuesday Friday, happy days. What a day. Coming up here with you. Great job, Mike. Thanks. Hey, I'm participatory, if nothing else. Okay, TV around the house. Do you guys have TV? We don't have TV. Do you know what? We do not have TV and haven't had it for years. now. How about YouTube and your daughter? Well, that's – so we have um, – we we don't allow a whole lot of that. We do allow some. We're not like we're not going to keep our kids isolated, but uh, you know we go to the movies all the time. We're inveterate moviegoers, so uh, that's where we get our real thrills of, of media kind of stuff. We you know our daughter Callie she does she watches lots of stuff on YouTube. She does do it yourself. She has her own do it yourself thing, which is gorgeous. And um 
she does watches all the exercise videos. Yeah. She's an exercise freak now, so she does all that. But she does. She has her own do-it-yourself channel that gets more views than my Socrates oh, so Cafe channel. Creating... Yeah, no, she gets more. She gets more viewers than I get on my Socrates Cafe well, you YouTube channel. Should start channel. doing like uh, opening uh, packages no, no. on your Socrates no, Cafe you know channel to now? suck people. No, in. No, you know what I do, and it's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely deceptive. Is I'll think, gosh, you know the search works. The things that she's into or was into, like something called num noms, now it seems like a lifetime ago because now she's switched off. She's a teenager. But it's like, gosh, if you even introduce certain things and I'll figure out some way to introduce it, then I can put num noms in. And suddenly all these people who never was, there's some, some ridiculous plastic made toy where they make obscene profits. That so you're like using keywords to get people to lure, lure it in. I wouldn't put anything beneath me. You know what my, one of my proudest achievements is? Is I found a video back in the early days of YouTube. It was a public service announcement out of Australia called Children See, Children Do. And it's this really heavy commercial where at the beginning it's just like a mom doing something benign and her kid is doing it too. And it keeps escalating to where at the end it's like domestic violence and there's like a boy behind it. So it's a really serious message. It's really heavy. I named it. I downloaded it and re-uploaded it and named it Best TV Commercial Ever, ever in all caps. And it has <laughs> 1.5 million views. No. The comments are just filled with people who were mad at me because they were there to see like a Super Bowl commercial that was fun. And instead, I like touched their heart with see? how we need to model. See? So I did we're what you learning. do. We're, we're <laughs> learning. If we really want to get an audience, forget all this legitimacy stuff, man. You got to go with how people – what brings people in. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, okay. Uh, it's time for your third song. All right. Here we go. Here we go. What you got? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. It, uh, uh, this is when I met Ceci, you know. she At first I was going to – I thought of a different song, but I thought, no, this is the song. This is the song that we sang to one another, just her and I alone during our 20th wedding anniversary. Our, um, we were so poor when we got married that we even decided not to have a photographer. It's just Ceci and I. Uh, holding hands, and she was wearing this gorgeous, multicolored, hand-woven uh, vest made by indigenous people in this community she once lived in, this Mayan community in Mexico. And she was just leaning back, and I was holding her hands. And um, but this song, Ceci, Ceci's, Ceci's my wonder woman. You know, she's she was the one who saved me. Yeah, you ready to listen to yeah. it? Uh, okay, I got to put my reading glasses on so I can say this intro. Um, this is Wonderwall by Oasis. First time it's come up on this show from the oh, wow. 1995 album What's the Story? Morning Glory. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. She saved me. Um, this song was super popular. It was almost overplayed. It's the song that is jokingly referred to as the song that everyone learning the guitar knows. So it kind of has it's, – it's reached yeah. this point in the culture where it's kind of sappy in a way. Yeah. But the lens of which the story frames the song is everything it's because everything. I'm choked up from hearing frickin' Wonderwall because of – and, yeah, Tara's got the frisian. Um, but you could say that about so many of the Beatles songs. I know, but that's it's, what's um, so amazing about the way the story you know, it and the song. speaks to everybody. And, uh, you know, I actually, at our 10-year celebration of our, our wedding, I actually wrote my own lyrics to a song that were so moving to the woman who put it to music that she was crying while she was playing it. I almost 
introduce that, but I thought, no, this is the song. You know, before I met Ceci and started Socrates Cafe, I mean, and Ceci, you know, she's the one who pushed me to just live my live out this dream of mine uh, to do to be this writer. Uh, this Socratic thinker and doer and maker uh, that anybody else who has a more practical outlook would have dissuaded me from. You know, you get you, you and and it was. I, I think I I I don't know. I don't know if I would even be here talking to you right now if it. Um, and it's not something I've really written about in my books about just how uh, really on the edge that I was that I found the love of my life. Uh, in personal terms, and the love of my life in terms of Socrates' cafe, at the that they in, entwined at the same time because just living out an existence and putting in my thirty years at something based on the family that I had that I think placed what much too much of a premium on money on the one hand and much too pre- much of a premium on past dwelling and inbrooding. It's it's a life I rejected in whole cloth as much as I, you know, loved them to pieces. But it was – she was that um, sort of person who just allowed me to uh, – even to this day, we have two kids and we're still living really on the edge. You have no idea. Um, But she she just has realized this is how Chris needs to live. She's like my Linda McCartney. Mm. She knows – Paul talked about how, you know – it's lucky that he made it through that dark, dark period. Uh, and so this is, you know, that combination of this sort of public thing that I do as a very private person. Uh, but it's that thing that I do that I connect with people in really deep and meaningful ways. But but Ceci is – she's sort of like that. Linda's playing a little bit in the background. She's w- also willingly a little bit in the black background. Um just because she knows this is what Chris needs, you know, and I'm willing to, you know, she subsumes a lot of the things that she wants to do or find some way to blend them into what I want to do just because um, she doesn't need, you know, need to fill that kind of vessel that I do. And so she's got a healthy enough ego and a sense of, you know, of herself that, that she allows me uh, and and gives me license to to live a life so fully of my choosing. Now, I don't know. It's so easy to say that uh, uh, you know somebody somebody just sort of allows you to be and to exist and to live in a certain way. I, I honestly don't. I don't know anybody who not just put up with me. I'm not easy to live with. I know. I'm a writer. I, I work strange hours, and you know, suddenly I'll hit a spurt and a, a good vein. But she just really has always just um, loved me. If there's such a thing as unconditional love, and I've always felt that love is much more conditioned than any of us want to be uh, honest enough to acknowledge. If there is such a thing, at least in, in, my, in my life, it's, it's her. And I've, we've had certainly our share of ups and downs, mostly Chris Phillips generated. But uh, no, she's, she's that wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
I just want to let the listeners know that we officially have worked our way through our first box of tissues in the studio. He, well, let me say that was pretty during... empty. <laughs> no, that was it. That's been there. We brought that in yeah. when we started this right. show 100 right. episodes ago. So I'm not oh, no, the first? You, oh, no. Oh, no. That's why it's here. That's what it I'm saying. It was out of reach. I had to reach for it. That's what I'm saying. We yeah. opened a new box of tissues when we started this show 100 yeah. shows ago. Tara did. And it well, was, yeah. You know and, what? And then now we've worked our way through right. it because you're not the only one. No. Well, Trust here's the me. thing. I thought I was going to get upset with my dad's music, and it didn't. Um, it's just joyful music, yeah. you know? And my dad was actually the most of the other three in my family, certainly the most emotionally even-keeled. Uh, the the music with my mother, I didn't think would, and then I realized this is a person who I think inappropriately, you know, would sob on my shoulders after having an explosive thing with my dad. Um, and I had f- sort of blocked that out, I guess, until I heard those words again. And then I thought, oh, my God, this I, I lived through that. I had to live through that. I had no choice. You had no choice. As a kid, you have so few choices. Um, so we had talked about, you know, p- p- parents are always saying, oh, being a parent is not for the faint of heart. I'm thinking, what the f***, man? Being a child is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. You have to put up with our you know? Yeah. And so, but it was the <laughs> song. And then I thought that the joyful one was the one with Sassy. And I'm thinking the tunnel that I was sort of in right at the, you know, when I met her, you know, it's not just suddenly I meet Sassy and it's all glory, but it's like, man, you know, you reach a point, or at least some th- sensitive souls do when you ask, well, what am I doing here? You know, wh- I mean, what what difference does it make in any way? And just having someone in my life that made it uh, worth plowing your way through some things and confronting some things uh, was just a saving grace. Hmm. Um, I don't want to overstate it, but uh, reading your book when I did, it came along at the right time to make sure I was willing to stay on course. Does that make sense? Staying on course, man. In terms of being myself, yeah. living the way I wanted to live, yeah. being daring, those were all things that I took away from your book. Wow. I have to, you know, this brings back, I got a, uh, some, some years, um, I got an email from a uh, young girl who was, she said my, my book kept her from killing herself. Uh, her mother had just died of cancer. She was just revealing to her father that she was lesbian. She was 17. And, uh, and that uh, they, it, was, it was my sixth question of Socrates' book. She said it, the section on courage gave her the courage to confront a lot of different things uh, and, and to go on. And, and she wrote me this. I mean, I, I just flew up to meet her. I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money. I just wanted to meet this person who's apparently whose soul I had saved because it was like, you know, paying it forward without knowing that's what you're doing. And I, I just had to meet her, you know, to know that something that Christopher Phillips, a kid from Newport News, Virginia, who never had a teacher who told him he could write worth a crap, was uh, had moved somebody so much that it, she was able to carve out an identity. To this day, we're in touch. This was uh, quite a... This is right. When my, it was quite a long time ago. Um, she's a very enterprising, successful reporter now in the in Philadelphia area. But it's like, gosh, you know, we if we can just save each other, man. You know, mm-hmm. we're pretty much at the end of our scope here. But I'm going to speed round some stuff to you. Right. Okay, you ready? Right. Um, 
If you could learn any instrument instantly and be good at it, what would it be? It would be the electric guitar. Okay. If you could start a band and have all the parts come together, what kind of band would it be? Zap. Okay. Um, if you were a championship wrestler, what would your song that you came out to be? Oh, this is cheesy, but it would just have to be uh, the Rocky song. <laughs> I'm sorry. It is. That would be a bold move for a wrestler to come out to the Rocky song. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it. you know what, though, man? It's about just getting beaten down, beaten down, beaten down, in this case, thrown down on the mat, and you just keep picking yourself up. I love people like that. I love them. Um, uh, do you have a favorite band of all time? Yeah, that's a yeah, – that's a – Damn difficult question, but I—I I, I mean, the 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 music that is just—I think the Beatles are the best. I think the Rolling Stones to this day, people don't understand how revolutionary they are. I mean, if you listen, did you listen to any of the stuff Mick Jagger came out with just le- recently called "England Lost"? No. Got to get a grip. This guy is still a revolutionary in his soul. He sees how. F- up this world is about the elites and then pushing the people who just come up on their shores aside to the point you see photos of people enjoying themselves on the beach where there's others who didn't make it who are trying to get to safe shore. Right. That's what that's the world that we're in. Where Mick keeps reminding us that if we lose our humanity all together, that if it's all about separation, divides, 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 then then what's the point? He still has that revolutionary spirit within him. I urge people to listen to his England Lost and Gotta Get a Grip. When I went there and saw he didn't even have two million listeners, Mick Jagger, this came out a couple years ago uh, after the Brexit vote. I'm thinking, gosh, people aren't listening to the right music. I, I truly feel that revolutionary music, you know, that speaks to everybody, not just the progressive field type that just doesn't speak to anybody except their little circle, but stuff, you know, that, that people came out with back then. I want that to come back again now. And I think it's going to breed a whole new era for philosophy, for poetry. You know, earthy but ethereal at the same time that somehow this canned pop music that's coming out now that you can just sort of go to a studio and mix it up and everybody's got a wonderful voice. I'm hoping that this is actually going to be the base for some some sort of resurrection of a, of a really new era in music that I can't even conceive of. That we're <laughs> going to take all this technology and stuff and work it through our human limbs and hearts and, and that there's going to be something new emerge from that. Cheers to that. Um, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today? I think my 14-year-old self would be absolutely – <laughs> dismay <laughs> and 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 thrill to no end the the 14 year old was going to be a a doctor the 18 year old went and worked one night in the emergency room and fainted almost and realized now this isn't the life for him uh so i think it the it would be so inconceivable to the 14 year old what i'm doing now um all but I, I think the 14-year-old wouldn't have realized just how open he was and that he was made of much stronger stuff to withstand a family with pretty strong expectations of what the straight-A student should do, what this math whiz and genius should do, and basically chucked all that to live a life of his own choosing. I mean, in my own way, I th- you know, I'm a kid of the mid-70s, and I basically told everybody to just go 
yourselves. I'm going to go live this life. I turned down. I was I was uh, applied to Harvard Graduate Business School, the UVA's Graduate Business School, accepted in the program. I checked it off for a $52 a week job as a newspaper reporter in Maine. I think, you know, I'd gone to, to Florida, Tampa every summer of my life. I went north. I went north in my trusty old horrible Ford Pinto that if anybody hit it from behind was going to go up in flames. Yeah. But I did. I went north. I, 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 and I think it was a sense of rejecting everything in, in a sense up to that point. I went north, man, to the coldest place I could. Instead of going down 95 south, I headed up 95 north uh, to a place where I just read an article in National Geographic. This is where writers went. I'm serious. I did I believe it. you. <laughs> and so it, it, I, I realized, you know what? I can just live my own life. I'm not going to be this person who's saying I didn't do this because of my mommy and I didn't do this because of my dad and my brother. Um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because of them. I'm going to do it because that for whatever reason, there's so many people who couldn't carve out a life of their choosing. So I do it for my manic depressive Uncle Jimmy. You know, who served and was a decorated war hero. I do it for him because he couldn't make it. I do it for my Jehovah's Witness uncle who lived out of his car, the best drawer I've ever seen, who if there was a contract to be signed, wouldn't have his pen. You know, some tragic. I live for these tragic characters because I was actually able to carry on when they weren't. Hmm. Can you recommend three people who you will share this podcast with who you also think would make a good guest on it? Well, the one that comes most readily to mind is my buddy Cornell West. Okay. I, I think that this program is perfect for him. I don't know if you could ever get Cornell to cry. Uh, he, he would always say, well, Socrates didn't shed any tears. Uh, he loves to say stuff like that. It drives me crazy. Um, but he and I just became buddies. You know, he's, he's relatively black and I'm relatively white, and, but he just loves what I do. And, and he would uh, – I think you'd get some stuff out of him that would be just extraordinary. We would be honored to have him. Yeah. I'll, I'll actually I'll, – I'm going to send him a, a WhatsApp message after we're done here. I think, I think Cornell West – another one that I think is a really good buddy of mine that I think would be absolutely fascinating is Lawrence Lessig. I know that name. So Lawrence wrote – he's on my advisory board. He's a law professor at Harvard and he wrote what became a phenomenal bestseller called Republic Lost and for very different reasons. These guys are from this establishment, University of Harvard, but I think he would reveal some things here that would be fascinating for your audience and to him. He's usually a pretty guarded guy, but he's had some very interesting and difficult experiences that have led him down paths that uh, – he, he ran for president four years ago and he got totally screwed by the DNC from, from joining it. So I, I think he'd be a really, really good candidate and um, – I'm trying to think of of a third. I'm a, I think I'm a little bit hard pressed to uh, somebody who who might be That's okay. somebody else. You don't have to. Have I don't have three. to come up with three. I mean, I would the for me the person I would love to see have one is the person who who 
is always just a little bit out of the limelight, yet is the most accomplished person in her way. I know is my wife, Ceci. Okay. Um, I think that she's got such a beautiful, eclectic range of music and lived experience. I mean, this woman left a conservative Catholic family in Mexico City and on her own, despite all of the opprobrium and horrible things, she went and lived in an indigenous community as a teacher in the community. She speaks a Mayan tongue. Um, this is – I met her after that. Uh, but I've never, I've never met in my entire life anybody who doesn't look up or down to anybody. Everybody's an equal, whether you're an invalid or homeless or anything, that she just treats you with warmth and love like nobody I've ever met. Nobody. And so I, I think it would be just a fascinating thing to have her. I think Ceci's, uh, in terms of her professional accomplishments, the best is, is much is yet to come, but it'd be. Uh, I'd love to listen to it. Well, put a good word in for us. I will. Um, are there any songs you'll avoid listening to for some reason, and particularly because of the memory that they might elicit? There's probably uh, some songs that I would uh, avoid listening to. Let me think. Uh, after the turn of the century, Bloody Red Baron of Germany. Uh, that one, and uh, maybe Smoke on the Water, uh, maybe, uh, um, gosh, what was that song? In the Sun Said, Long Hair, Greasy People. Just songs that bring back <laughs> memories of things that are better left, uh, not thought about. Understood. Well, that is all the time we have. Do you have any final thoughts? Man, this was intense. This was uh, incredible, uh, cathartic. I think is uh, – I'm just so glad I did. I was actually – was afraid to come in because uh, I, lived, I lived down to my worst expectations. I did ball like a baby. Never thought I would do that. But uh, it's just a beautiful thing, man. Thank you for making this. Oh, well, it's yeah. our pleasure. Tr- thank you. Trust yeah. me. Yeah. Thank you. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and sometimes hosts, too. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're turning the calendar back one year to episode 59 with producer and songwriter and lead singer of the band Rosaline and proprietor of Juniper Recording in Cape Coral, Caleb Neff. His third song story was about his intense love of and admiration for the 1996 album Bringing Down the Horse by the Wallflowers, particularly track number eight, Josephine. Always is my road trip record. Um, just start to finish. But what I think about <laughs> with that song a lot is that I played that when I was in college for my songwriting class. It was like, play your favorite song. And mm-hmm. I played that, and everybody, I just remember everyone, like one of those seared into your memory as like an embarrassing in front yeah. of a group. And I thought, am I wrong? Am I wrong? It's like everybody was looking at me like they felt sorry for me after You're I played right. that song. And oh, I was like, oh, it's okay, Caleb. And it was like awkwardly silent. And I was like, no. Like at this point in my life, I'm like, that's the best song that's ever been written. Fight me. I don't care. Was that, <laughs> like, was it's that so this, good. Was that in the window of when it was still getting a lot of airplay? No, no, no. This was like, that record came out in 96. So I would have been like 10 or 11. Okay. Yeah. Dude, it's a perfect record.
Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. Poor Judd is dead. <laughs> Poor Judd Fry is dead. That is currently singing about Judd in his smokehouse. Yeah, I could go on, but...